Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Following the saint Foix Mosque murders, one of the horrific events that it's almost impossible for us to wrap our heads around how someone could be so gratuitous, gratuitously and brutally violent. Quebec constitutional lawyer Julius Gray joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Gray is one of the most highly respected constitutional human rights lawyers. He's represented some of the most highly profiled clients and newsmakers in this country. And earlier this year, represented a Muslim school in Montreal, which had been described as being something akin to a military camp in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and this by a secular writer in the city of Montreal. Julius, it's good to talk to you. It's been a while. Yes, it's been probably a year or so. It has. So, a lot has been said. If we can just set just set aside the, the, the tragedy, the, the, the horrific murders in saint Foy, yeah. and look at what's going on in the province of Quebec... There's, there's a lot been said about it, the reason for concern about the attitude in the province of Quebec toward immigrants generally and Muslims particularly. Is that a fair statement? It's not entirely a fair statement because Quebec has been integrating immigrants. And I, for instance, as an immigrant myself in Quebec, I've always felt welcome and everything was fine. Where I find there is concern, it hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with, with any greater racism than anywhere else. I'm sure we have our share like everybody else. It's in Quebec's uh, tendency to disregard freedom of expression uh, on subjects that are unfashionable. Um, so they, they now want to strengthen the hate laws. And before that, they wanted to strengthen the secularism laws, or they'll want to prevent somebody from uh, coming up with a an alternative vision of the family in which radical equality between men and women is not accepted. I, I must tell you, I'm in favor of equality, but I think somebody should be able to say something like that if he sincerely believes it. So what I am concerned with is Quebec, in Quebec, perhaps everywhere else too, is the tendency not to give the weight to freedom of expression that it deserves, except on fashionable subjects, but at the same time to... Uh, always seek, whenever anything like this happens, some way of reducing it, strengthen the hate laws, do this or that, and not look at the real socioeconomic causes, for instance, the exclusion. The fact that on both sides, when these horrific acts take place, and of course you can't blame either the majority or the minority, these acts are exceptional, the people who do them are dreadful, but these are usually the product of exclusion of people who have no real future who think they don't have jobs, and either some idiot thinks that the immigrants are taking their jobs, or some uh, somebody on the other side, on the immigrant side, or the Muslim side, thinks that they're not welcome and they're, uh, uh, they're being uh, treated as second-class citizens. And that is the economic causes are there. That's also so in France and in Germany and so on. 
the reason why these things happen is not because there's too much freedom of speech and people are allowed to, to, to uh, uh, shoot their mouth off against other groups. The reason is because there are so many frustrated uh, people who don't see much hope for the future and because the inequality is growing in our society every year. The rich are richer, the poor are poorer, and all sorts of people suddenly uh, go off. And of course, it's only a minority that will do so. The average person will not. is is, is much too decent, much too uh, uh, controlled, much much too reasonable. But it's it's that sort of thing that leads to terrorism. Julius, what do you make then if you say that it really isn't a specific issue? The immigrants and Muslims, particularly in Quebec, what, how do you then assess? that 95% of Quebecers and about 83 to 85% of Canadians nationally supported Jean Charest's proposed legislation that anyone wearing a niqab would not be serviced by a government employee in Quebec. That's a huge support number. Yes, but I think you will find that in most places, the majority of people will support something like that uh, because they don't see just how important it is for the other person. You know, it's amazing how people have a tendency to view their own point of view as correct and not be terribly concerned uh, about the other side. True. Uh, for instance, how uh, when there's an ethnic conflict, say, between Turks and Greeks in Cyprus, if you speak to one, everything was done right by his group, and unfortunately the other group hates them, and vice versa. In this particular case, uh, most Quebecers simply did not, most Quebecers, Canadians, don't realize that uh, when you uh, accommodate individuals, uh, you help them integrate. Uh, what you do when you uh, say you can't have your kerpan or you can't have your, your scarf or you can't have uh, certain services, you go to the hospital and say, take off your niqab. I mean, how can you even contemplate not, service, not serving somebody in the hospital? Then those people withdraw into themselves, into their own community. In fact, see, I'm not a pro-multiculturalism guy. I believe people should fuse, and I hope that in two or three uh, generations, everybody will have four different grand- grandparents and uh, all these uh, ethnic things will be untenable. But at the same time, I think the way to do it is to permit and uh, and to tolerate and not only tolerate but to welcome the individual to make them feel good but to and take your to take your that. to take your point Julius you say we all want to respect our own opinions are you perhaps missing the point a little bit when you look at these numbers that uh, the Canadians have put forward that they're supporting this is a big well, big number and maybe it's an issue that maybe it's an issue of concern it's an issue of concern to me that people have not realized that the best way to integrate is to permit, because in the past we've integrated most minorities, and it's not by t- making them take... So the, the melting pot, them. the melting pot formula is preferable. You know, it's more than a melting pot. I, I call it a Republican formula. I'm, I'm very much in favor of the French ideal, but I think they're going about it the, right, the wrong way. So I'm, uh, my ideas are a mixture of the methodology of Canada, saying bring your kerpan, wear whatever you want, and, say, and uh, individual liberty is important. But at the same time, the long-term goal is integration. Uh, but but I, I want to point out to you that I don't think it's just Canada. I think everywhere in the world you get similar figures. And if you had a poll in, in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia asking whether foreign women should be covered when they come there, you probably have a poll in favor of forcing them to cover. So um, uh, human inability to understand that the best way to integrate is to welcome 
is something that we have to uh, to combat by education. What about I, your case? What about your case earlier this year, where you had the the secular writer who was uh, an immigrant to Canada and became a member of the Parti Québécois? I think she was from Algeria originally, and she described the Muslim school in Montreal that you represented as something of a place that would be similar to a military training camp in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The school was looking for $95,000. And the court said, no, we don't agree with the school. We we agree with with the writer, that she has the freedom to say what she wanted. Yeah, but I, I, I agree that she had the freedom to say what she wanted. Well, the court did. Favor, restricting freedom of expression. I'm in favor, of, uh, but there's a libel law. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail there because that's an appeal. Now, that's an illustration, however, I'll tell you this, of my view that freedom of expression is protected for cases, which for causes which are fashionable. For instance, it's very difficult to understand how that case was decided in the context in which Mike Ward was not allowed uh, as, a, as, as a comedian uh, to... Uh, uh, make fun of something when he started out by saying this is a comedy show and so on. No, I agree They're with fashionable. you. I agree with the, you. The, yeah, but the point is, this isn't a case of pure freedom of speech. If the state were coming after Mrs. Ben Abib saying you're not allowed to say it, you should go, you should be punished, I would say no. It's a case of libel. In libel, the question is, did she say something false that could be damaging to an individual uh, or an individual institution? And I think the answer she did is she did. Now, we'll see what the Court of Appeal says. I certainly am already thinking about how to draft my factum. Uh, but uh, and, and the same, of course, and we're in appeal in my court, and I hope we shall win that one. I have high hopes. For Let me ask you this. That. Do we live in a society where people are just not accepting or not as accepting as our political leaders tell us we should be of someone who is not like us. And I'm, I'm not saying whites or blacks or brown skin or uh, language or ethnicity or, or religion. Just generically, are we not as accepting as a community? Is it is it in the human DNA to have a to have a tribal attitude? Some people say it is, of course. And there are all these, you know, selfish gene theorists who say that our personality originated in uh, the uh, Stone Age period or even before hunting and that gathering period, and that at that point the other group was simply a rival for a finite amount of food. Uh, we can argue that this way or that way. I believe that uh, biogenetics, while it provides an interesting insight, is not the whole answer. And I think people can change in that way, and we can bring to people's attention the fact that it's in their own interest to open themselves uh, to others. But it is true that everywhere in the world, if you look at the world as it is right now, especially since the decline, uh, economic, uh, the decline of equality since about 1970 or 80, ethnic uh, loyalties, uh, sort of uh, local preferences have come back in a big way, and I hope they don't. I, I like to believe in a world in which people mix and, and, and friends come from all sorts of groups and in which the differences between individuals are individual. I, I like to think I'm not like anybody else simply because I am me, Julius Gray, not because I'm somebody who was born in Poland of a Jewish family, came to Canada and lived in this community or that community or, or, or spoke English and then started to speak French. Uh, I, I would like any differences between me and the others to be individual. It will be, it's critical that we, that we come to some sort of understanding 
of what's going on. You know, we talk about a populist movement, and there is a populist movement, and we've seen it in the U.S. election. We saw it in Brexit. We saw it in the British uh, election as well. We may see it in Europe later on this year. Populist movement, uh, good, bad, or however people assess it individually. But we have to come to some sort of understanding of what kind of society we're living in, what kind of society we want to live in. Populism is, uh, uh, among other things, simply erroneous uh, scientifically. Just like people believe that if you let somebody wear their scarf or wear their, uh, their turban, they won't integrate, and that's wrong. The opposite is true. So people believe that immigrants take jobs, but in fact, all economic theory tells you that immigrants create jobs, that if you let in a 1,000 people, you'll be better off after five or six years. Sure, you might have a, an instance where a job is lost to an immigrant, but on the whole, people are better off. People don't see their own interests, and populists exploit that. For instance, there would be a terrible crisis in the United States if uh, tomorrow you expelled all the illegal Mexicans. There'd be nobody to do some of the jobs, and the spending they do, the buying of groceries and so on, would create bankruptcies and so on all over the place. But people don't see it. What they think is, he took my job. And that's an economic error, apart from other things. Well, uh, Quebec City, saint is going to have to be a teaching moment. For, for everyone, or at least a good discussion moment. We'll not, we're not going to be able, fortunately, we can't get into the head of the uh, alleged shooter. If we could, I think there'd be something wrong with many of us. Julius, thank you. It's always good talking to you. It's a pleasure to speak to you. All the very Bye-bye. best. Julius Gray, constitutional and human rights lawyer in Montreal. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Super Bowl Sunday... And Mark Yost, who writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal, for other publications like Sports Illustrated. He's one of the very best. He's got so many great sports books, business on sports, including tailgating sacks and salary caps, how the NFL became the world's most successful sports league. And you just go to Amazon.com and you'll find all of Mark's books. Mark joins us on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We all get wound up huh? for the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter who's playing. We get wound up. Now, I've chosen my favorites because I'm a Cowboys fan. So they lose to Green Bay. I'm happy that Atlanta beats Green Bay, but I don't want the NFC to win now. So I'm, and I like Brady, so I'm going with the Patriots. That's my, that's my logical thinking. Well, you know, there's some, there's, <laughs> good afternoon, sir. Do your you? best, Mark. <laughs> well, you know, there's some good numbers to back you up. I mean, let's, let's just kind of real quickly go through the Pats dynasty. I mean, this is their ninth appearance uh, in the Super Bowl. That's an NFL record. It's Brady's seventh appearance. Uh, that's also a, an NFL record. But here's the thing you should be focused on. Did you know that um, the Patriots will be wearing white shirts and the Falcons will be wearing red shirts? In 30 of the 50 Super Bowls, 11 of the last 12, the team in white shirts has won. And you can bet there's millions of dollars bet on that. There, there will be. And, and uh, the red-shirted teams are only 5-4. and four. And three of those are the San Francisco 49ers. So, um, so, <laughs> so, so somebody, somebody, oh. somebody, the Falcons didn't do their homework. Well, maybe, but uh, they, uh, they, the, the, they, they chose to wear the red shirts, and uh, so. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's a you know it's a big day not just uh, here in America but all over the world. I mean, it's almost as big as Boxing Day up there in Canada, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, the one thing I'm encouraged by is we're starting to see 
some more reasonable numbers around the Super Bowl. And what, what, what do I mean by that? Most of the time I, I spend my career spitting into the wind, trying to disprove the NFL's economic impact numbers. The, the round number that the NFL has used for the past, I don't know, five or six years, is $500 million. That, for, that's the economic impact of the Super Bowl. The one game. Well, one game. And uh, in terms of ad revenue and, and tickets and hot dogs and all that stuff. Um, but Houston actually was forced to backtrack on that number, and the city comptroller actually revised that number and came out with a $350 million number. Now, for, you know, for your listeners, that's a, that's a net, that's a gross impact. That doesn't mean the city of Houston is going to gonna see $350 million from this. Like, I, you know, I've talked on your show before, a number of sports economists have debunked those numbers. Those are economic impact studies paid for by the NFL. Uh, and it seems the, the best number I could find for you, because you asked me to look this up, was, was BBVA Compass, which is a, a big bank here. They're expecting a $69 million economic impact. Um, and that's about right. Phil Porter at the University of South Florida, the best guy on this sort of stuff, he, he puts the Super Bowl's impact at about $50, $60 million. But, but to put that in further context, BBVA Compass looked at it, and they said that $69 million represents less than 0.5% of the entire economy in Houston. So, for so, the city, so then for the city of Houston itself for the city's economy, overall economy, the Super Bowl has a fairly insignificant impact. It it is. And and you know, I've I've talked on your show before about, you know, if, if you go to places I, I wouldn't put Houston as one of them, so so Houston's probably seen a little bit more of a local economic impact. But if you go to places like Phoenix and Miami, which in the middle of winter are not suffering for visitors what the Super Bowl essentially does is what economists call crowding out. So if I want to go to Phoenix and play golf, I might have gone this weekend. But if the Super Bowl was there, I'm just going to change my plans and go a different weekend. So, in fact, the Super Bowl visitors have crowded me out of the market. I would have gone anyways. So it's like a one-for-one replacement. So you can't really count it as an economic impact. Um so you, you look at that, and then, you know, a lot of the hotels, but there's a big brand-new uh, hotel that Houston built downtown, uh, the Marriott. That, the Marriott, that's a, that's a corporate hotel. Marriott's headquartered in Virginia. All that room revenue is going to go back to the corporate headquarters in Virginia. Yes, there's people working overtime at the hotel um, uh, and, and that, but so that's, that's, that's a minimal the other thing, and you and I were talking about this before the show, is that a lot of people don't realize the NFL gets 100% of ticket and parking revenue from the Super Bowl. So, so like in terms of the Houston Texans, there's no, other than the prestige of having the game there, there's no economic benefit to them. They don't get any of that. And in a bit of, and a bit of trickery, and this is what, what annoys the fans, these kind of things, not only does the NFL get that revenue, it insists that the city and the state reimburse it for any sales tax that is associated with that ticket. So for the NFL, it's a huge issue, and for the city of Houston, 
not so much as far as their economy is concerned, measurably. But Mark, what about this, just the name of the city of Houston being out there as much as it is repeated hundreds of thousands of times or maybe millions of times over the last year and particularly over the last few weeks as the Super Bowl has drawn closer and closer and closer? Just the recognition factor and maybe putting Houston uh, in there as a destination point for vacations when you might not have thought of Houston previously. Well, it, it does help a little bit. I mean, you, it, it, it's all mostly good publicity, and we'll, we'll get that to that in a second. But here's the thing, and, and a lot of your listeners in Canada probably don't realize this. Americans already know about Houston. They already know about Texas. Texas is the fastest-growing state in the country. In fact, right now, some people at the Census Bureau would tell you that Chicago is no longer the third-largest city in America. It's Houston, Texas, because so many people have moved out of Chicago because of high taxes, crime, that sort of thing. And so Houston is a very fast-growing city, uh, very affordable. So they, what I'm saying is they don't really need the advertisement. People have already discovered Houston. And, of course, the oil and gas business and the healthcare industry in Houston, it already brings people from all over. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, Mr. Yost, who writes on the business of sport for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to get caught up in minutia here, and you and I will talk about things that we care about nobody else does. Um, what about the billions bet? Any idea of how much money is going to be bet on the Super Bowl? It's in the, I heard a few years ago more than $100 billion bet on a Super Bowl a few years ago. Is that possible? Um, you can you can never really trust some of those estimates. The one I like to look at better is Las Vegas because they're actually regulated and they have to report it. Um, uh, so Super Super Bowl in 2015 um, allegedly um, 125 million dollars in the United States bet on in Las Vegas on the Super Bowl. So That's a lot you know, of money anyway. And, and this is a, this is a big game. Um, uh, and the Patriots are involved, and and so I would say it's probably in the neighborhood. 130 million um, is going to be bet in the, in in Las Vegas. And um, people will bet on whether the people will bet on whether the coin is heads or tails. They'll bet on the length of the we said the length of the national anthem. Whether Lady Gaga will, will or will not bring up Donald Trump. They bet on anything. They they will. There's uh, you can bet on how long the first. Um, Pass completion will be the current um, odds are 11.5 yards. Um, you can you can bet on uh, what color hair Lady Gaga will have, how many times Giselle Bouchon, the uh, supermodel wife of, of uh, uh, Brady, will be shown. The current over under is one and a half. Um, you can bet on whether I think it's Luke Bryan that's singing the national anthem, whether he comes out in jeans or quote some other kind of pants. Don't you think, though, hey, Mark, Mark, if you're going to bet on how long the anthem is going to take to sing, right, and if there's a fair bit of money bet on that, wouldn't there be the temptation to approach the anthem singer by some people and say, all right, you make sure that it goes more than two minutes and 12 seconds because I got a lot of money riding on it. I, I guess you could. That's like, you know, unlike a team sport where you have to, kind of influence a number of key players. Bribing the anthem influence. singer. <laughs> hey, tell me, who do you, who's the more irritating quarterback to use? Is it Kaepernick or Brady, based on the fact? Oh, I that... think it's, 
I think it's Kaepernick. I think he bothers a lot more people just because of uh, his protest against the anthem. Um, uh, but it's interesting, you know, Brady, you brought it up in, in your intro. Uh, his, his friendship with Trump has turned a lot of people off. In fact, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by a guy from Vermont who said, listen, I, 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 I'm up here. I'm, I'm, I'm a longtime Patriots fan because they are the New England Patriots. Um, and he said, but the, the, the whole Trump thing has turned me off. He said, am I going to cheer against the Patriots? No. He said, but, but it, it's bothered a lot of people. He said it's come up with a lot in a lot of like barroom and diner conversations about uh, Brady. And yeah, Trump there's, and a, there's a lot of talk about it. Now, the other, the other issue is Brady and Kraft versus Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner. And Brady said the other day, yeah. I'm angry at some things, but I'm not going to tell you what it is here. And you know, he wants to receive the Super Bowl trophy and the MVP trophy from Goodell. And then he wants to take those trophies, and you know what he wants to do with them. Shine them up. Well, but you got to remember, as much as this is about sport, it's also about, about money. And these guys all know that the place to have their fights are behind closed doors. And Brady was asked several times in the in media day about Deflategate and about about Goodell. He said, "Listen, I'm here to have a good game. I, I want to see a good game. That I, I'm not going to talk about that stuff." And yeah, I, I know, think, I know that's what and, he said. And they're going to stand up there, even though they might privately hate each other, um, and they're going to smile and shake hands. And Goodell is going to be gracious and congr- you know, if this happens, and 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 congratulate uh, Brady. No, no, I get I get all of that. And, uh, I get all of that. I just know. I just know what Brady wants to do with the trophy. <laughs> Mark. Well, I, yes, sir. As always, I thank you for joining us on this, and uh, we'll, we'll know later tonight who Super Bowl 51 winner will be. I hope they just eventually do away with the Roman numerals. I can never figure out what that stuff is. Just do 5 and a 1. Well, you should have paid better attention in fifth grade. I should have, uh, and sixth, and seventh, and eighth, and ninth. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. All right, take care. Mark Yost. You'll find his books. Just go to Amazon.com. And one of his books, of course, deals with the National Football League. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, we have talked, as you know, on this show with police officers, female police officers, women officers all over the country for a number of years, going on 10 years, actually. Women officers who were victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Some went to court, settled out of court. Others had their cases run through court. Others weren't getting to court until they got together and said, let's do something about this. There wasn't going to be a court case. And as you know, last summer, the federal government finally acted and reacted. We, we read a, a news story from 30 years ago where the parliamentary uh, members of parliament were arguing with each other, debating the point that they had in front of them the female officers, women officers were being sexually harassed then. So fast forward to 2016, and eventually and finally the federal minister of public safety, Ralph Goodale, stood up in front of the country in a nationally televised and broadcast news conference facing two large class-action lawsuits by women police officers and women employees within the RCMP. And the federal public safety minister said, essentially, this cannot go on. 
The federal government recognizes the fact that these women have been harassed and assaulted, and we're not going to allow this to continue, and we're announcing a settlement in the class action lawsuits. And then he mentioned Atoya Montague. And I cannot give you the exact words of Mr. Goodell, but he said something like, Atoya Montague is one of the women who has been sexually harassed, or she's one of the women who has been most affected, or one of the women who's a victim. And Atoya has a separate lawsuit going. She's not one of the members of the class action suits. And I, I communicated with her after that news conference. And what I said to her was, Ralph Goodale mentioned you by name, so your case is done. Yeah, the, the, when the public safety minister mentions you by name as a victim, you know, Atoya, he's going to settle with you. He's going to, the, the government lawyer is going to call your lawyer and they'll offer you a settlement. Isn't that what I said to you? It is indeed what you said to me, Roy. Good to talk to you again, Atoya. It's great to talk to you, Roy. Thanks for having me back. And what happened? Well, since then, a number of things have happened. I've continued to get dismissals, threatening dismissal letters from my employer. Uh, threatening to essentially fire me. I also have had um, two separate postponements of my trial, which was initially scheduled for September 2016, which past tense would have been over and done. My nightmare would have ended. But defense counsel came back and requested a delay. And they received the first one without my knowledge that was supposed to be scheduled for January 2017. And then since then, uh, they've come back and, oh, sorry, January 2018, since then, they've come back with a request for further postponement, and now my new trial is not scheduled until June 2018, which makes, I have to point this out, the, the timeline from the day I filed my first complaint, which was with the Human Rights Commission of Canada in 2012, it'll take me nearly six full years to get to my trial and to um, see a positive outcome to this long, sordid, nightmarish event of my life. And this is with the full knowledge. <laughs> now, before them, before the government, before the judge who's heard all the evidence that led her to approve the class action lawsuit and certify it, which will see 20,000 women getting a letter in the mail, letting them know, we believe you, and if you'd like to come forward with your story, you can seek compensation. So there's enough evidence before that judge, before the government of Canada to approve of all this and set aside $100 million plus in front of the entire RCMP, they're sitting on all this evidence. All that evidence is there, and in it, it's very clear that going through these long, lengthy, delayed processes further victimizes us. It, it takes our symptoms of PTSD and the medical condition and exasperates them. I'm definitely not healing through this, let me tell you. Every time there's a setback, every time there's a new set of ridiculous demands for particulars that forced me to get into a great number of details that I know, Roy, will never, ever result in any single person I'm, I'm naming facing any consequence. No one's being held accountable. I mean, they know all this. So it, it's really difficult to be in my shoes um, because it feels like a slow, steady torture. They know so well I'm telling the truth. Of course they do. Well, well and, Ralph, Ralph Goodale said that. He pointed, yeah. he named you specifically, and you may have been the only, the only woman plaintiff he mentioned by name, and he very specifically named you as a victim, 
And so now you've received nothing in the way of any communication, nothing in the way of any correspondence, nothing in the way of an offer of settlement from the federal government or the public safety minister, correct? Correct. And to the contrary, they've done the opposite. They've delayed things. They've pushed things forward. They're, they're bogging me down with demands and particulars. Uh, the, you know, the process, is, if anything, is becoming more burdensome than it was before he said that statement. So, so he used I you. He, Antoya, he used I don't know. you. He used I you. I don't know. I wouldn't say that necessarily, but well. he used my name. He used three others at, at that news conference, conference. And I believe his sincerity. I believe that the minister wants to see change. I believe he's fed up. I listen to his comments in the media. He sounds like a very frustrated individual every time this comes back in the news about another incident that was improperly investigated where the perpetrators have carried on unpunished, and, and unfortunately the victims have been the ones who face the consequences. The victims are the ones who face the discrediting, the being dragged to the mud, the vicious attacks, the isolation, the bullying. I mean, that is going on now, and there's more stories coming forward about that now. And I know it's frustrating. It has to be frustrating for the minister. But, wow. but again, when you're sitting in my shoes, you really have to wonder, do they really get it? Do they really get the impact that this has had on my life? That it has absolutely, I've had to sacrifice everything for this, everything to seek justice. And I'm going out of my way to provide solutions and to help them manage this. Yet, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm here, I'm looking at another year and a half of this, and I don't understand. I wish I had the answers for you, Roy. I really do. I don't understand. Um, and what's frustrating is how many other victims I hear from in policing, in fire, in military, in construction. And what I've learned through all this is that the, the justice system for victims of bullying, abuse, sex assault, discrimination, whether that be their own internal system, the human rights complaint system, the civil and or criminal justice system, is falling short and for the most part failing. Okay. You know, we've, we've spoken okay. with, uh, with women in the RCMP, women in, mm-hmm. a woman in the fire department in Toronto, a woman with mm-hmm. the fire department in Halifax, mm-hmm. uh, spoken with, uh, obviously with you, spoken with women officers in the Calgary Police Service, and the story and the experiences have always been the same. There's been the same, the same story has been repeated about the sexual harassment, the sexual assault, the bullying, and, and, and women have sought and required uh, mental health treatment because of the PTSD and what they struggle with and what they what they live with. Now, when you're very gracious toward Mr. Goodale, Atoya, I have to say that, because for Mr. Goodale to mention your name clearly, he was made aware of you. He was made aware of you, so he mentioned you in the news conference, and I was 100% certain that one of the very first people they would contact would be you, based on the fact that the minister mentioned you by name. And yet here you are, waiting another year and a half, or will expect it to wait another year and a half for your trial to take place. This has to also be financially punishing for you. Oh, extremely. Extremely. And again, that's part of this whole process that they have to deny, delay, and discredit the victims. The delay portion of that is, is a financial strategy, right? If The longer we can push these things out, they eventually will run out of money. And meanwhile, they send you, while that's happening... Parallel to that, they send you letters in the mail saying, we're going to fire you. So the, the pressure that it's put on a victim to quit and give up is extraordinary. No wonder more women and men 
frankly, don't come forward. They watch us go through this and think, I, I, I don't have that in me. I mean, look at what it took, you know, Jen Ward this week going in front of the police commission in Calgary. I mean, that, that was the single bravest act I think I've ever witnessed a person do. You know, what would it have taken? How hard did they have to push her to get to a point where she would stand up and read that resignation letter, that yeah. powerful letter? Yeah. And she's right. She didn't leave Calgary Police Service. They left her. And that's so backwards because there's a woman who's demonstrating the very skill sets, the leadership skill sets, the communication skill sets that policing really requires. She should be running the organization. She, they should be doing everything to foster, nurture, and promote women like her. And instead, she's, a, she's broken down, bawling her eyes out in front of the whole country, knowing her family is going to be so hurt and to see her so devastated. And she did it anyway. The bravest thing I've ever seen anyone do, by the way, and I've spoken to her about that and given her all my accolades because I believe she's going to inspire a new movement because we're hearing more and more that this is happening in all police forces, fire services, military. And, you know, we spoke with Leslie Bikos on your show this summer, and she's doing the research and the studies, and she's spoken to 60 so far uh, police officers from 20 organizations, and she says the story the same across the board. We really have to, Canadians really have to understand the impact that this is having on public safety, on the public service. I mean, if you think of the hundreds, the thousands of hardworking, dedicated, brilliant police officers and firefighters who have been pushed out of the organization, the very people who should be leading them are the ones who get pushed out. It's a heady realization when you really think about that. The yeah. impact it's having. And instead of being productive members of society, these people are broken, they're, they're, they're sick with PTSD, their families are falling apart. I mean, it's just really the impact, the totality of the impact is something that honestly, it just, it really devastates me. No, I, I, I spoke really with, I spoke with Canadians. Jennifer was on this program last That's summer. Yeah. And she told her story on this program last summer. She did. And nobody reacted uh-huh. to it. Nobody, nobody reacted to it. She, she told, she told her story. She explained what was going on, and we spoke with, we spoke with another member, a woman member of the Calgary Police Service. I'm not going to mention names now, right now. I, I don't, I want to talk to them first, but, but we spoke at length over an hour about the experiences. Nothing was said. Nothing was done. There was no reaction, and they came on this program and they spoke clearly about what they were experiencing, and the emotional level was. Tremendous. It was so high. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Atoya Montague, back with you, Atoya. So what happens now? I mean, you have a lawyer, you have a physician, you have support. Has anybody reminded Mr. Goodale about the fact that he mentioned you in that news conference? I don't know. I'm not privy. (laughs) I don't get updates on what briefings he gets. I wish I did would help a lot because it would relieve some of the anticipation and anxiety there if you had more access to what's going on behind the scenes. I feel there is action and obviously this great news with the 20,000 potential women being settled to class action is fantastic and there's momentum there. And frankly, you know, this momentum really started in, in August 2011 when Susan Gastaldo was the first to come forward by launching her lawsuit against the RCMP. And, and when you think about that, that that set us into a steady stream of other victims coming forward from police, fire, and military alike to class actions, 
Um, it started an avalanche. And this is the positive, uplifting part of the story, is that women really have banded together and said, okay, if she can do it, I can do it. But you need, you need, you need, the, inter- you need so, the intervention now. You need that federal government to step up now, I right? I, I do. You, I so do. I would suggest, Atoya, yes, I, 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 I would suggest I, that your I lawyer... I need to be older, Roy. I need to get on with my life. I know you do. $55,000 on medical bills in the last wow. two years. $55,000. Because the conditions see, that's... have just... It's, it, the medical conditions that have come with all this is just staggering. It's, it's almost embarrassing. You're looking at your medical file thinking, how did I go from the healthiest human? I ate well. I exercised every day. I was the epitome of health. And now I have a binder from Veteran Affairs Pensions that is it's 20 inches big, full of stuff. And I'm spending out of pocket that much money in just two years. And I've probably spent as much since I've been on sick leave. So it's probably been more like 150 grand. Just in, my, just in the health service, like accessing health care because it's expensive to heal all of these things. It really is. You know, it's... And that's it's, a co- component no one's talking about, but it's significant, yeah. and every woman out there listening knows what I mean. You know, it's so wrong. It's so wrong that they're putting you through this because, again, if for no, no other reason than we can say that the public safety minister mentioned you by name as being a victim, and now the federal government is stepping up for other victims who are mentioned not publicly but are in the class action lawsuits, but you're mentioned publicly, so the public safety minister should step up and provide you with the kind of settlement uh, that they've been provided to others or offered to others. And I think maybe your lawyer you. ought, let me just say this, maybe your lawyer should inform the minister, remind the minister that he mentioned you by name and and inform the minister directly that you haven't done anything for Atoya. I love the way you think, and I wish you were my lawyer right now. <laughs> well, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it, Atoya. I'll do it. I'll do it. Please intervene. I will do it for you. I would. I would accept your help in a heartbeat. I will do it. Feels like. Okay, great. I will do it. I have to run because we're out of time, but I will contact the minister's office personally, and I'll let you know what they say. Okay, that's wonderful. And we'll let everybody know what we'll let everybody know what they say. Okay? I can't thank you enough for what oh. you've done for me and this whole cause, Roy. If more men out there were like you, we wouldn't be having these discussions. We'll that's talk. all I have to say. We'll There's talk your role soon. model, people. Take, take care, Atoya. We'll talk soon. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Atoya Montague. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. In 2014-2015, I think the number is 138,000 patients in uh, Canada's hospitals suffered needlessly because of procedures that were done on them, procedures that didn't necessarily have to happen, suffering that wasn't necessary. We'll do a show on this specifically shortly. Healthcare does fail patients. A friend of mine contacted me a few weeks ago, and he, he said, I, uh, I want you to talk to my neighbor. And then he told me his neighbor's story. And so I called Charlotte, and I found out about her 29-year-old daughter. And that's what, uh, that's what we're, go- we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Charlotte's daughter and what happened in the, and how the healthcare system didn't work the way it's supposed to, and how people fall through the cracks, and what can happen when that happens, and how you should all take steps constantly to protect yourselves. I'm also going to share something that, that I haven't shared on the air in, in any detail. I tweeted a little bit about it earlier today. 
You know, my wife died. Um, this is where I run into trouble. Um, we have talked about this, right? And I know it's very, very difficult to talk about, period. And I really appreciate you helping me and supporting me talking about Jesse by sharing your own. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Roy. You and I have had some lengthy conversations, and uh, they've helped me. So thank you for that. Tell You're us about, welcome. I'll, I'll tell the story about what happened with Liana shortly. Uh, tell us about Jesse. Um, Just the person. Very, very kind of difficult story. Jess, um, my beautiful 29-year-old daughter, uh, struggled for about the last eight years with an eating disorder. And she had roller coaster rides, ups and downs, and always struggled with electrolytes. That is one of the most brutal side effects of eating disorder illnesses. And had been in hospital, uh, had gone to emerge uh, in November just prior to our, our trauma, and um, been told that after blood tests, her electrolytes were very low, and she was to get herself to emerge and, and uh, get some intravenous. And uh, this was sort of set up as, as a monthly um, a test that they were going to follow. And she had just prior to the incident uh, been in for blood on the Friday. Um, she had gone early enough, about 11.30, quarter to 12, and had her blood taken. And we kind of spent through the, the rest of that weekend. She was kind of tired, but just we had a lovely weekend, very calm, very quiet, and uh, hadn't heard. There was no, no information relayed about blood tests at all. And at the end of the day, um, I went up to take her some water and ice that she had asked for, and there I found her not breathing. Um, she had very clearly had a massive cardiac trauma. Um, I started CPR and called 911, and what unfolded after that was probably uh, the most traumatic experience that I, I will say I hope I ever I ever experienced in my life. Um, the EMS people, the police that were here, the um, Emerge and ICU staff were extremely proficient. They were absolutely wonderful. Um, the most difficult for me in the first 24 hours was coming home and uh, tr just trying to pack up some things that they had asked me to bring in for Jess and listening to my answering machine on the Monday night, and there was a message for Jess um, from her physician to get to emerge because her electro electrolytes were red flag critical. Well, so let's go through this. So Friday morning, 1130, uh, Jesse goes for the blood test that's yes. required. Correct. So there's plenty of time left in that day to, if it's an emergent situation, to find out and do something about it. Correct. And... and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Roy. No, no, no. I don't want to interrupt you. Well, if um, if they had, if 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 she had perhaps gone to the doctor, that might have made a difference, and he could have seen the blood. But there wasn't an appointment, and she was just waiting until, you know, she was contacted that anything might be wrong. Right. So, but but the blood test shows that the, her electrolytes were critically low. Yes. And if your electro or your potassium. 
your, your potassium is if it's critically low, you're in heart attack territory. Correct. I saw that with with my wife when her um, potassium levels were low. They would they got extremely low. Uh, one time they they sent an ambulance. They that got is they, correct. they got that the they got the tests, and they didn't even call us. But the they called they they called, they called the ambulance first, and then they called us and said that ambulance is on the way. Correct. The in November when she had had her blood done and her level. Actually, at that point, I found out was the uh, the same. Um, her physician had phoned her and said, "Sit down, do not go anywhere. Um, do you have a right to the hospital? If not, I'm going to phone an ambulance now." Okay, so that was November. That was in November. Now this December weekend, and it's before Christmas. Yes. This December weekend, Jesse went in at 11:30 to the lab to have the blood test done. Correct. Clearly, by the end of the day, they have, if it's an emergent situation, and they knew what, that, that this was a situation, hers was a situation, they would analyze the test right away because, because of what she was living with, what the dangers were. Correct. So they had the information on Friday. On Sunday night, your daughter has the massive cardiac arrest that you described, and she's rushed to the hospital. Correct. On Monday, after you've been at the hospital with your daughter, you come home in the evening, and there's a message from Jesse's do- uh, doctor saying, "Get to emergency because of potassium the, levels. Because your potassium levels. So it took two and a half days. That is correct. For that information to get from the lab to you. That is correct. In the interim, your daughter's had a massive heart attack, and yes, she's she in the did. hospital, and was down too long and died on December 27th. Oh my God. You're listening to The Roy Green Show weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The common denominator, the common denominator that's always been the same when it comes to people who share an extremely difficult occurrence in their lives, very painful, often involving losing a loved one. The common denominator about why they'll speak on the air while they'll go public is because they want to protect other people from experiencing what they have. And that's the situation with Charlotte, who's joining us to talk about the death of her 29-year-old daughter, Jessie, and the information about her blood test obtained on a Friday that her potassium levels were critically low and she should report to an emergency room. It wasn't delivered to her, weren't delivered until sometime late on Monday. Meanwhile, on Sunday, Jessie had a heart attack, which would, by December the 27th, cost her her life. Charlotte, there's, there's something that you want to share with people about what, they, what the system says you can do, should do, but it's supposed to protect you from what happened to Jessie. It's the funniest thing, Roy. We, um, we being Jessie's very very close and dear friends, but more importantly, uh, her father and her sister and, and aunts and uncles who have, and, and cousins who have lost a brilliant, beautiful woman dogged by an eating disorder, something that uh, is never spoken about or recognized. Um, in actual fact, it's, it's shamed that she had issues that were going to reoccur. And if these issues, 
her electrolytes, her potassium, which had been followed and, and noted and worked on over the last course of perhaps two or three years, were going to be that critical. My question is, how did such a critical life and death piece of information, one blood result, not get to her? And when you look at what happens when the average person goes to a lab, they go in, they take their number, uh, they're registered, they present their form, they get their blood, and that is the end. And I'm saying if this had been that critical, why wasn't Jesse given or told personally in, in, in the moment face-to-face that she needed to check this result herself? Although she has no training, uh, she's not a medical person, she's not in the medical field at all, um, that there were options available to her that she could have seen her own blood result within two days or two hours. And apparently, uh, labs, private labs that are now collecting blood, uh, are apparently handing out brochures or have posters that you're allowed to go on and register and screen your own blood before it's even seen by your doctor. So my question again is, why is this not given to all people? Yeah. I had a a blood test done not long ago. Nobody said anything to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I went in. I took my number, as you said. I gave them my health card. I went in. I had the blood test done. They said bye-bye. I said bye-bye, and I waited for the doctor to call me. Exactly. And, And this is a case of um, we're often, we often live by, in, in looking after our own health care, mm-hmm. no news is good news. Exactly. And in actual fact, no news means no one is telling you anything. So the option exists with these private labs that we know of, uh, that you can fill out a, f- a form or a pamphlet or, or, or some sort of instructional or that, 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 or, that, that shows you how to go online right. and register and perhaps pay Uh, for a period of time where you can go on and um, get your own blood results immediately. If Jess had had her blood, uh, as the option was was never available and is not available now because it was cut back uh, at at an outpatient lab at a hospital, um, it is the hospital's then responsibility to inform the individual if there is an issue. You know, putting the onus on the patient is not fair. Because you don't know who the patient is. You don't know what the patient's circumstances are. You don't want to know what the patient's faculties and capabilities are. And if, 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 a, if a lab result shows that there is an absolutely emergent situation, that a heart attack is likely going to be the result of not reporting to an ER quickly, then the system, the healthcare system that we trust in, has every responsibility. We're talking about literally life and death situation. And the healthcare system has the responsibility to do anything and everything in its power to locate that person, or locate next of kin, or locate a, a contact person, and make sure that information is delivered immediately, not two and a half days later, after the person's had a heart attack is in, and is dying. In fact, if and the, here, herein lies the, the, to me, the most significant question that I'm quite sure if Jess were here, she would ask. If I had had that piece of information, how would it have altered the outcome mm. of what had happened? Yeah. And we all know the answer to that. We do. She is a very smart young woman, and she would have made her way to emerge. 
the next question is, are we not ever to have our blood taken on a Friday? That's a good question. Or a Saturday? That's a good question. I went to see a doctor uh, on Friday, this past Friday, and he did a procedure on me. And then they asked me to stay for a while just to make sure there wasn't a reaction or response. And then later on Friday night, I started to feel a little weird, a little funny, physically, you know. And I wondered if it had something to do with that procedure. And I thought, I should never do this on a Friday. I should never have any procedure done on a Friday because I don't know. Who do I call? That is correct. Who do I call? I don't know this doctor. I was sent to him. I, I, I want to sh- I, how the system can fail as well. I've, I've, never, I've never talked about this on the air. My listeners know my wife died. You know I. I've talked to you about it, mm-hmm. and you know what I'm going to say now because mm-hmm. I've shared it with you. Um, oh boy! In 2013, my wife started to feel not well, so we went and um, we had—I um, don't want to go into too much detail. We went for um, consultation, and the first thing that was done was a chest x-ray because she was coughing and wasn't feeling particularly great in the chest area. So logically, the first thing that was done was a chest x-ray. The chest x-ray report came back, everything normal, everything fine, no problems. Everything is exactly as it should be, nothing wrong. So they sent us to a hospital um, to see, a, to see a, an, uh, an internist, and then we went to see a Another doctor who suggested that uh, a colonoscopy did be done. We went to see a general surgeon who shoved a needle in my wife's stomach and said that should take care of it. And then they started worrying about, sort of thinking about, well, what have we missed? Because she got worse and worse and worse. So they said, well, let's do nuclear imaging. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We got called in after the nuclear imaging. It was done over a weekend, Monday morning. We got called in. The doctor walked in and said to my wife, Get your affairs in order. You're dying. That's all he said. And we jolted and said, you have the type of lung cancer she had. And so uh, we, I took her to a different hospital, and she was admitted, and they were, they were really good about it. And they started doing chemo because she was very close to death. She said, they said that she might die within 48 hours because she had a massive tumor on her lung that could compromise her aorta, and if it did that, she would bleed out. So they kept her alive. The, the chemo backed off the tumor enough, and anyway, a couple of weeks later, she's out of, the, out of a room and being tested, and another one of the oncologists, one of the lung doctors specialists came in. He said, Mr. Green, I have to tell you something. I don't want to, but by law, I have to tell you. I looked at that original x-ray of your wife, the one that was deemed to be normal, everything fine, nothing wrong. He said, I looked at it and I called in two of my colleagues who are radiologists and I said, look, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Just tell me what you see. And they both said, large lesion, left lobe of the lung. In other words, the original x-ray showed a large malignant cancer on her lung and the radiologist's report was, everything's normal, everything's fine. It wasn't found for four months. Exponentially, that tumor grew for four months. That's all I want to say. Charlotte, you're an amazing woman. Thank you so much for, in Jesse's name, alerting people to take care, ask questions, 
make sure that you know the questions to ask. Don't leave before you've asked. Don't leave before you're satisfied that everything is the way it should be. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Roy. You take good care. We'll talk. Thank you very much. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.